This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to my 100th episode of Keep the Faith, my mostly weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. I say mostly weekly because I'll be taking off next week. As for this week, there's a whole lot of heat in the news these days, literally a whole lot of heat. Over 100 million Americans from the Gulf Coast to the Great Lakes are living under a massive heat wave that has temperatures in many places soaring toward and even into triple digits. Add on the oppressive humidity that's accompanying the heat and the heat index in some areas is as high as 115 degrees Fahrenheit. The hottest place right now is Death Valley in California, which saw the thermometer hit 123 degrees on Saturday. That set a new one-day record for the day, and it was just 11 degrees short of the hottest temperature ever recorded there. Summer heat waves, especially in the southwest, are nothing new, of course. What's not typical is that the ones we've been seeing over the last few years last longer and are more severe. For that, we're told, blame climate change. Climate change is also being blamed for the mega drought that's been afflicting the Southwest for the last 22 years, the driest period in the Southwest in 1,200 years, according to a recent study in the journal Nature Climate Change. A mega drought is a drought that lasts two decades or longer. One place where it hasn't been dry, at least not this week, is in Montana's Yellowstone National Park, where unprecedented rainfall caused the park to be shut down on Monday and 10,000 people had to be evacuated. The heavy rains washed out roads and at least one bridge, and even a park-owned bunkhouse. As one relief worker told reporters, quote, I've never seen this, not in my lifetime. There are people that have lived here 64 years. They've never seen the river this high, unquote. In many other western areas, meanwhile, local residents have never seen their lakes and rivers so low. But I'll get to that. Then there are the wildfires that are spreading like, well, uh, wildfires. Alaska has seen 20 of them so far this year. New Mexico has seen six, including this week's midnight fire that so far has consumed nearly 5,000 acres. California and Arizona have seen three, and one was recorded in Texas. A fast-moving one in California spread to nearly 1,000 acres in just a little more than a day on Monday. The Sheep Fire, as it's being called, is one of more than 30 wildfires that are active this week across five states. So far, these fires have burned about 1 million acres. Here, too, climate change is being blamed for this destruction. And so the topic for this week, if you haven't figured it out yet, is yet another look at environmental issues and Jewish laws views. Let's begin with those wildfires. States like California used to refer to the summer months as a fire season. But as a spokesperson for the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection put it the other day, quote, it's really now more of a fire year, unquote. It's easy to see why. 
so far in 2022, over 13,000 acres of California real estate have been destroyed by over 2,700 fires. And that number is still climbing as I record this. According to the Cal Fire spokesperson, quote, 10, 15 years ago, we used to call it the California fire season, where we might get fires, say, in July that would last through maybe September or October, so it's just a few months. Now our fires are extending all the way through December and then into January, so it's not really accurate to call it a fire season because that doesn't make sense anymore, unquote. We've heard much the same thing from Arizona's governor, Doug Ducey, at a news conference in March. He warned that Arizona's wildfire season could be far more worse this year than in the past. Then he said this, quote, I'm reluctant to call it wildfire season anymore because Arizona faces the risk of wildfires year round, unquote. The state's wildfire season typically starts in May. This year, from January through March, Arizona had already experienced approximately 90 fires. Right now, there are two major fires burning just a few miles to the north and northeast of Flagstaff, and those have consumed over 25,000 acres of Arizona land in just three days. The fear is that the two fires will merge, making them even harder to contain. What California and Arizona are saying can probably be said for every other state experiences annual fire seasons. They're now fire years. Colorado ushered in 2022 by battling a wildfire that began last December. There were several fires in the Boulder area in late March, and in mid-May, a grass fire forced the Colorado Springs Airport to shut down. In April, Colorado State Senate President Steve Fenberg warned that the state boat may very well be heading into the worst fire season in our state's history, unquote. That's a very telling statement. Colorado, in fact, has been growing hotter and drier in recent decades, thanks to climate change. The three largest wildfires in the state's history all occurred in 2020. And its 20 biggest fires on record have all occurred in just the past 20 years. So to say that Colorado, quote, may very well be heading into the worst fire season in our state's history, unquote, something people in the Mile High State need to be very worried about. Wildfires burn up dollars as well as land and buildings. Since 1985, the federal government has spent $1.1 billion per year fighting them. That's a total of $41 billion spent over 36 years. Droughts are also costly. The federal price tag battling 258 such disasters since 1980 is over $1.75 trillion. Wildfires and droughts are not the only climate change concerns, though. The annual hurricane season began on June 1st. Forecasters at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration say that this hurricane season very likely will be yet another above-average one which would make it the seventh above-average hurricane season in a row. We may see as many as 21 named tropical storms, including between three and six major hurricanes. Again, climate change is 
pegged as the culprit. There's a huge dollar cost that comes with these storms. According to NOAA's Office for Coastal Management, the total cost in just the last five years alone was over $742 billion. What's most significant about that is that it's more than one-third of the nearly $2.16 trillion price tag for all such weather disasters over the last 42 years. Our hurricane seasons would look a lot different if climate change wasn't a factor. Studies have shown that 21% more storms form for every 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit that ocean surface temperatures rise, and the higher the temperature goes, the stronger the storms they bring. The 2020 hurricane season was the worst of the last seven seasons. The average surface temperature in the North Atlantic that year rose by over 33 degrees Fahrenheit. As I noted earlier, America's Southwest as a whole is in the midst of a historic mega drought, meaning a drought that's lasted over two decades. Great Salt Lake in northern Utah is the largest saltwater lake in the Western Hemisphere. Today, though, the only great thing about it is the danger to life it may pose. Climate change has caused it to shrink by two thirds over the last 40 years. That shrinking has been exposing lots of arsenic on the lake bed. The fear is that high winds and storms will whip up that arsenic into a toxic dust bowl that could poison the air around Salt Lake City, which is home to 75% of Utah's population. As of Sunday, the depth of Lake Mead outside Las Vegas has shrunk to a little over 1,045 feet above sea level. In fact, Lake Mead lost six feet of water alone in just the last month. The lake is now at 29% capacity. These are just two examples of what the drought has wrought so far. Carbon dioxide emissions are perhaps the biggest planet-warming offenders. The Supreme Court is expected later this month to make it harder than ever for the federal government to do anything effective to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide that we here in the States throw into the atmosphere. The U.S., in fact, is responsible for the largest portion of carbon pollution anywhere in the world. Back in 2008, there was an amazing commercial that aired on national television screens. It starred two of the most unlikely allies, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, a moderate liberal Democrat, and former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, a virulently conservative Republican. The subject of that commercial was climate change. After noting that the two rarely agree on anything, Gingrich said this, quote, We do agree that our country must take action to address climate change. If enough of us demand action from our leaders, we can spark the innovation we need, unquote. Nowadays, most all of our politicians on the right side deny that climate change and its offshoot, global warming, pose any kind of threat, and they've successfully done everything possible to prevent governments at all levels here in the United States from taking effective action to change things around. On Monday, 
Georgia's representative, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who generally thinks science is a leftist plot and that Jewish space lasers cause wildfires, actually said that all of this carbon we're releasing is really good for us. The earth is greener than it's ever been, she says, and we're able to feed more people. She simply ignores all the science that says otherwise. You can't make this stuff up. In any case, last November, not a single Republican voted in favor of a roughly $2 trillion bill that does deal with climate that passed the House by just seven votes. To avoid a Senate filibuster, it was passed as a budget reconciliation bill, meaning that all it would take to pass the bill in the Senate is a simple majority of 51 votes. It's stuck in the Senate because all 50 Senate Republicans have said they'll vote no, and two Democrats, West Virginia's Senator Joe Manchin and Arizona's Senator Kristen Sinema, haven't yet said they'd vote yes. The bill isn't passed. The United States won't be able to hit its 2030 target date for cutting carbon emissions in half and its 2050 target date for ending them completely. With all of this in mind, let's look again at Judaism's take on things environmental and ecological. Actually, we don't have to look very far. The Torah's attitude is there for all to see right at the beginning in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 1, we're told that we humans were created in the image of God. That's a problem because normative Judaism maintains that God has no image. In fact, Maimonides, the Rambam, lists believing that to be number three on his list of Judaism's 13 principles of faith. If God has no image, though, how are we supposed to understand what the Torah means by we humans were created in God's image? Well, God does have an image of sorts in Genesis 1. The image of being the creator of everything that exists. Being created in God's image means that we too must be creators. What that means comes a bit later in Genesis 1, which tells us that God declared creation to be, quote, very good, unquote. It's the job of we who are created in God's image to make what was very good even better. That's where Genesis chapter 2 comes in. God creates a verdant environment as a home for the first human, the Garden of Eden. But that lush real estate came with a catch. As the Torah informs us, the first human was given the responsibility to, quote, till the garden and tend it, unquote. Taken together, what emerges is a mandate for we humans to be the stewards of God's creation, its protectors and its improvers, not its destroyers. Of course, there are those people who inevitably point to another verse in Genesis 1 in which God says that the human was to, quote, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the cattle, the whole earth, and all the creeping things that creep on earth, unquote. This, they insist, means that we humans are in control and can do whatever we want to do. Not so, according to the medieval commentator Abraham Ibn Ezra. Anyone who believed that, he said, was simply ignorant. That's his word. Ibn Ezra then cites a verse from Psalms that says that God rules over the heavens, but that God, quote, has given the earth to the children of men, unquote. What that verse means, he said, 
is, quote, that man is God's pakid over the earth, unquote. The word pakid means steward. It's a specific term referring to a commission for a specific task. In this case, that task, as I just mentioned, is found in Genesis 2, to till the earth and to tend it. Ibn Ezra said that in the early 12th century. It remains true today, as the words of the late and revered 20th century Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook make clear. Quote, no rational person can doubt that, unquote. Rav Cook, for those who don't know of him, was the first Ashkenazic chief rabbi of what was then British Mandatory Palestine, and words such as these about the world around us were common for him. For example, the late Rabbi Arya Levin was an Orthodox rabbi dubbed the Tzaddik of Jerusalem for his work on behalf of the poor, the ill, and the imprisoned. He once recalled how a visit he had with Rav Cook in Jaffa in 1905 set him on that half of righteousness. Quote, After an early mincha, the afternoon prayer service, he went out, as was his hallowed custom, to stroll for a while in the fields to gather his thoughts, and I went along. On the way, I plucked some branch or flower. Our great master was taken aback. And then he told me, gently, believe me, In all my days I have taken care never to pluck a blade of grass or a flower needlessly when it had the ability to grow or blossom. Every sprout and leaf of grass says something, conveys some meaning. Every stone whispers some inner hidden message in the silence. Every creation utters its song in praise of God the Creator." Those words, Rabbi Levin said, quote, engraved themselves deeply on my heart. From that time on, I began to feel a strong sense of compassion for everything, unquote. There's a Midrash written nearly 2,000 years ago that I've quoted before that graphically adds emphasis to the Torah's concern for the environment. It has God taking the first human for a tour of all the plants and trees of the Garden of Eden. Then God said to the first human, quote, See how fine and excellent my works are? Take care to neither corrupt nor desolate my world, because if you do corrupt it, there is no one to come after you who can set it right, unquote. There's no one after you who can set it right. That's a powerful statement, and it was written nearly 2,000 years ago, before anyone ever heard of climate change. There's something else relevant in Genesis chapter 1. It tells us that God ceased from creating on the seventh day. At Sinai, God unveils the Shabbat commandment and very pointedly referenced it to that first Shabbat. The Shabbat commandment tells us that we humans, and even the animals we were directly responsible for, needed to rest on Shabbat because God rested on that day. Later in the Torah, God declares that, quote, In the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath of complete rest, a Sabbath to the Lord, unquote. That's another way the Torah makes our stewardship clear. Just as people and animals deserve a time to refresh, coming every seventh day, so too is the land entitled to rest and refresh, coming every seventh year. There's more, though. 
just in case we humans didn't get the message that the first two chapters of Genesis was sending us. Torah in its legislation is more direct. As I've noted in earlier podcasts, Torah law bans water pollution, air pollution, noise pollution, and odor pollution. It also bans the needless destruction of anything that's useful to any living creature, human or otherwise, and it does so through a commandment not to destroy trees that serve a productive purpose for all life, animate or inanimate, including the environment. There's good reason why the Torah chose trees to issue its prohibition against the wanton destruction of anything. Trees not only help clean our air, but they also actually give us more good air to breathe. Here are some facts to consider. The world's forests remove about one-third of fossil fuel emissions each year. In Los Angeles, for example, which is known for being among our most polluted cities, trees remove nearly 2,000 tons of polluted air each year. In Chicago, the 18th most polluted U.S. city, trees remove more than 18,000 tons of air pollution each year. In Greater Kansas City, which ranks 47 among our most polluted cities, The number is 26,000 tons removed each year. Just think how much worse those cities would be without trees. Think how much worse we'd be without them. Trees absorb carbon dioxide, CO2, which is made up of one carbon atom and two oxygen atoms. The trees separate the carbon from the oxygen, keeping the carbon and sending the oxygen back into the air. A mature tree will absorb more than 48 pounds of CO2 from the atmosphere and send the oxygen back into the atmosphere. A North Carolina State University study found that just one large tree can provide enough oxygen every single day for up to four people. The Rainforest Alliance estimates that more than 20% of the world's oxygen is produced in just the Amazon rainforest alone. The Torah's emphasis on trees is also seen in another of its requirements, in this case that there must be a green space surrounding every walled city. This Torah law prompted our sages of blessed memory to declare, quote, It is forbidden to live in a town in which there is no garden or greenery, unquote. This isn't some kind of throwaway statement. The sages were very serious about this ruling because it illustrates the importance in Judaism of the natural world, a world we're supposed to live in partnership with, not in opposition to. The Torah's needless destruction ban, known as Baltashchit, do not destroy, begins with trees, but it extends out to anything that has productive value to humans, to animals, and even to the ecology. According to the 14th century rabbi Aaron Halevi of Barcelona, we can't even destroy a single grain of mustard if there's no valid reason to do so. I've cited many of the Torah's environmental laws in the past, and I won't repeat them now because this podcast is already long enough. The Torah's message, though, is clear. The earth is the Lord's and all that's in it, as the psalmist put it. And we humans were given the task of protecting the earth and treating it and all that's in it with respect. Global warming is real. Climate change is real. 
And because we are Am Yisrael, the people Israel, because we're the people God made into a Mamlechet Kohanim, a kingdom of priests, the Goy Kadosh, and a holy nation, we must be in the forefront of every effort to protect our world from the ravages being wrought by all aspects of climate change, global warming especially. Our task is to teach the world by our example how all people should live, which means following all of God's moral and ethical laws, not just the ones that are convenient or non-controversial or that don't make an impact in our wallets and pocketbooks or that don't interfere with our politics. Bluntly stated, if we sit on our hands and do nothing to insist that our legislators at every level put laws in place that will protect the environment, and if we don't actively support efforts to protect our natural world generally, we're violating Torah law just as much as if we were the ones cutting down the trees and polluting our waters and poisoning the air we breathe. Pray for our world and for the success of those who seek to make our air more breathable, our water more drinkable, and our climate more sustainable. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I do hope you come back for my next podcast in two weeks, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts Go to www.shamai.org, www.shamai.org, and email me, please. If you don't get the Jewish standard but want to read my columns, go to the columns page of my website. The latest column is about the importance of Jerusalem remaining a united city under Jewish control. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy. Keep wearing those N95 masks in indoor venues, no matter who tells you otherwise. And get fully vaccinated if you haven't done so as yet, including both the first and second booster shots. And above all, stay safe.